Well, we welcome all of you who are joining us online, also those of you who are meeting together here at Central Campus, along with those of you who are meeting at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, South Calgary, and also at our Bearspaw campus. We're in a series in the book of Romans, and before I get into our study today, I want to address a question that came out of last week's message that a number of individuals uh, asked me about. Uh, Last week, we talked about the danger of judging others and that only God is qualified to judge. Jesus said, do not judge or you will be judged. And so the question is this, Pastor Henry, when we share our faith and we tell others uh, certain biblical truths, like for example, that we're all sinners, people accuse us of being judgmental and intolerant, saying, who are you to judge me? Didn't Jesus say we're not to judge? Well, that's a good question. And in response, I would say this. I believe people are justified telling us that we are judgmental, not on the basis of biblical truth that we share, but if we communicate our beliefs and convictions in an arrogant, judgmental, and condescending way. This also applies when we bring correction to a fellow believer who is clearly drifting from God because of habitual sin or ungodly decisions. If we meet them one-on-one and point out their sin, as we're instructed to in Matthew 18, but we do so with a critical, harsh, judgmental, I I want you to pay kind of attitude, then not only is our heart in the wrong place and we are sinning, But we have stopped being a friend, committed to restoring them to the Lord and to his church. And instead, we've now become their judge, which you'll remember Jesus says is not our role. That is his role. Only he is worthy and qualified to judge, not us. But having made that clear, when Jesus said, do not judge, he wasn't saying, well, stop speaking biblical truth. Stop expressing your beliefs or your faith in Christ. He wasn't saying, water down your convictions to avoid upsetting people or being accused of being judgmental and intolerant. Because if we share a truth that they don't agree with and we do our best to share it in a loving, sensitive way, we still risk upsetting people and These same people accusing us of being intolerant and judgmental, even though I might point out, in doing so, these people are being intolerant and judgmental of us, which would make for an interesting discussion all of its own. But we won't go there right now because of time, and we need to get into today's message in Romans 2. And so if you're able, I'm going to invite you now uh, to stand with me and join me in reading the scripture that we're going to be studying, starting in verse 6. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. 
There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who will be declared righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word, its instruction for life. And Lord, I ask right now that you would focus our minds, Lord, and help us to understand what it is we've just read, and we'd be able to apply it to our lives. Pray that you would soften our hearts to receive the word that you have for us, and Lord, that you would give us the courage to do what you're asking us to do. For I pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. So let me ask you, if you were to die tonight and moments later find yourself standing before Almighty God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? Now, depending on your worldview, I realize some of you believe that this is never going to happen because you don't believe in God and or the afterlife. But humor me anyways and reflect on this question for a moment because it gets at the heart of the scripture passage that we just read together. As Christians, we believe that God is as real as I'm standing here and that he created us in order to have a relationship with us. In fact, we read uh, in the book of Genesis that our first parents, Adam and Eve, had a close relationship with God and each other. Now, unfortunately, Satan planted a lie in their minds that their life would be just so much more exciting and satisfying and fulfilling if they were just to give God the boot and take charge of their own lives. And sadly, they swallowed that lie, hook, line, and sinker, turned their back on God, and went their own way. That act of rebellion not only resulted in evil entering the cosmos, but also fractured their relationship with God and each other, leaving a God-shaped hole or God-shaped vacuum in their hearts and in everyone's heart ever since. And from that day on, people have been trying to fill that hole in their heart a longing for intimacy that can only be satisfied by God himself. If you've ever taken more than five minutes to reflect on your life and your purpose in life, and you thought to yourself, is this all that there is? Well, then you know what that hole in your heart, that sense of emptiness, 
feels like. Well, ever since then, God has been pursuing us, trying to get our attention, to invite us to come home to a relationship with himself. And here in Romans 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul explains various ways that humanity has tried to fill that hole within themselves. First of all, some try to fill the emptiness in their own way. Their theme song would be the same as that of Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. Yeah. These people have a pagan worldview and could be called the rebellious. Rebellious people reject God. They say, I don't want God or anyone else telling me what is true, what's right or wrong, or how to live my life. It's a defiant, rebellious spirit that says, I'm in charge, and I'm going to do what I want to do. Instead of worshiping God as their creator and as their Lord, they try to fill that hole in their heart with the temporary things that God created, including power or position, possessions, people, and pleasure. And sadly, by rejecting or replacing God with these things, the rebellious have eliminated the only one who can fill that hole in their heart. So first of all, some people attempt to fill that emptiness their own way. Others try to fill the emptiness within by living a good moral life. That brings us to chapter 2, where Paul turns the spotlight on another group of people who could be called moralists or the respectable. As these people listen to Paul describe the rebellious people in chapter 1, they say to themselves, you know, I'm not perfect, but man, I'm sure a lot better than they are. I don't hate God. I'm a law-abiding citizen. I'm clean living. I'm a respectable person. Now notice that these respectable people that Paul's talking to here in chapter 2 are part of the church in Rome. Many respectable people are part of the church. Many respectable people believe that God exists. Unfortunately, they often live like he doesn't exist. They see no need for him except in emergencies. They figured that they're good to go with God because they try to live good, honest, moral lives. Keep the golden rule. A life that they believe guarantees them a ticket to heaven because, after all, their moral life is far superior to many other people that they know. Which brings us back to the question I started off with earlier. What is it that you are trusting in to make you acceptable to God and to have eternal life in heaven? This is serious business, folks. Because we're talking not only about the focus and the quality of your life here on earth. We're also talking here about where you're going to spend eternity. And that is Paul's concern here. He wants everyone to be crystal clear on what our trust and what our hope is based on. In 2 Corinthians 13, 
Paul gave this challenge to the people who were part of the church in Corinth. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And here in Romans 2, he gives a similar challenge to those who are part of the church in Rome. He essentially says, there is a faith that is genuine and alive. And there's also a faith that is empty and dead. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. And then toward that end, Paul spells out three marks of genuine faith. First of all, genuine faith focuses on Christ alone. This is Paul's point in the first five verses of chapter 2, which we dealt with last time. One of the symptoms that we're trusting in the wrong things is when we take our eyes off Jesus and we compare ourselves with others, spiritually and otherwise, and we become critical and judgmental of them. Instead of judging ourselves and the quality of our friendship with God, we find a false sense of security by judging and comparing ourselves with others, which is not only dangerous, but it's also deceptive because we are trusting in our goodness rather than in God for our eternity. And so the first mark of genuine faith is a faith that focuses on Christ alone, on the depth of my friendship with Jesus, and not on how I compare with other people, spiritually or otherwise. The second mark of genuine faith is it's a faith that is in Christ alone. Look at verse 6. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now at first glance, these verses seem to be all about works. Is Paul saying here that you can inherit eternal life solely on the basis of your good works? Well, no, he's not. And the reason is, is because to accurately interpret and understand Scripture, you need to look at what all of Scripture is saying in relation to the verse or verses that you're looking at and that you're trying to understand. God does not contradict himself. And so if one verse seems to be contradictory to what many other Scriptures are saying, then even if we can't explain the apparent contradiction you go with what the majority of the scriptures are saying. For example, consider what Paul wrote about 21 verses earlier than Romans 1.1. Uh, in Romans 1.17, rather. This is what he wrote. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is what? By faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul is clearly communicating here, we're saved by faith, we live by faith, 
not on the basis of works. Or look at what he wrote in Romans 3.22. It says this, the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Again, Paul's clearly saying we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So then how are we to understand Romans 2, 6 through to 11? Well, Tim Keller and many other Bible commentators point out that when Paul in verse 6 writes, God will repay each person according to what they have done, he's actually quoting from Psalm 62, verse 12. So what had people done in Psalm 62? Well, the author King David is contrasting two groups of people. One group is plotting against the king. Their trust is not in God, but in themselves. And they're taking matters into their own hands. They say one thing, and they do the opposite. The other group rests in God alone. Their hope is in him. And they know their salvation comes from him. They've put their trust in God. And it is this faith commitment that Paul is actually referring to when he says here in verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they have done. In other words, the one group trusted in themselves and God repaid them with his wrath. The other group trusted in God alone and God rewarded them with his saving grace. And so make no mistake, a God-pleasing faith is a faith that is in Christ alone. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. Ephesians 2.8-9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so first of all, genuine faith focuses on Christ alone. Secondly, genuine faith is in Christ alone. And then thirdly, genuine faith is evidenced by good works. Look at verse 7. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying if your faith is truly in Jesus alone, your faith will be validated by your life. You will persist in doing good and living a godly life and you will do it not out of a sense of obligation or duty, but out of a heart of love for Jesus and trust in Jesus. The good, the good works that you do will be motivated by a desire to reflect his glory, a desire to honor him, and a desire to live forever with him. Now to make sure that we get the point, Paul describes the opposite in verse 8. This is what he writes. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. 
Paul says, if you are self-seeking rather than earnestly seeking after God and his agenda for your life, and if you're rejecting the truth, in other words, if you refuse to learn and be instructed from God's word, refuse to submit to the truth of God's word, to be and to do what God's calling you to be and do, it's evidence that your faith isn't genuine, and therefore you're still under God's wrath. In verse 9, he adds, expect trouble and distress in your life. On the other hand, if your faith and friendship with Jesus is the real deal, verse 10 says, you're going to be blessed with glory, honor, and peace. So here's the thing, and please don't miss this. Paul is saying that even though the basis of our salvation hinges on a genuine faith in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished, our works, our deeds, the way we live our lives really matters because these works, these deeds are the evidence that our faith is genuine and even more so, God is going to use them to bring a little heaven to earth. Keller gives a helpful example to explain this truth. He says, the apples on a tree prove the tree is alive, but they don't provide the life. It is the roots that pull in the nourishment for the tree that give life to the tree. Well, in the same way, it is our faith in Jesus Christ alone that gives us new spiritual life. But like the apple, a changed life is what proves that your faith is real and alive. Though we must be careful not to conclude that good works must be added to our faith in order to be saved, we mustn't go the other way and conclude that good works and the way we live aren't really that important. Paul makes it very clear here. If there is no evidence, if there's no apples to show that we have a living faith, then we really need to question whether our faith is alive and genuine. Verse 13 says, God's going to judge the authenticity of our faith on the basis of what we actually did, not what we intended to do. Look at verse 13. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. <clears throat> in verse 12, Paul writes, this is especially true for those who have the law, in our case, for those, those who have the scriptures. But in verse 14, he goes on to say, it's also true for those who do not have the law. In other words, those who have never read the Bible, don't even know the Bible exists, don't even know anything about Jesus, because God has written the requirements on the law, of the law on their hearts. And what this means is, every human being, past and present, has been given a God-given moral code, a conscience, a measure of light by which they can distinguish between right and wrong. 
And God is going to judge every person according to the amount of light that they've been given. The more light that we have, the more responsibility we have, and the more and the greater accountability that we have as well. Now here in the West, we've been given lots of light, lots of truth through the access that we have to God's written word. But here's the thing. Some Christians seem to be fixated on getting more and more teaching, more Bible studies for themselves, for their kids. They consume more and more knowledge, which of course is a good thing, but if that is all that we do, then like a glutton who misuses food, we are not only misusing God's word, but we're missing the point of why he gave us more light in the first place. He gave us his word. He gave us more light, not just to consume it ourselves, but to challenge us, to inspire us, to live out what we are learning, to step out and to trust and to believe God more and thereby not only grow in our faith and our friendship with him, but to bring his kingdom to earth. James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now let me be clear. I am not saying stop reading and studying the Bible. No, I'm saying that as we hear the word taught, like we are right now, as we study the Bible, that we would have the courage to ask ourselves the questions I ask after every message that I give. Lord, what are you saying to me? And not only, Lord, what are you saying to me, but what are you saying to us as a couple? What are you saying to us as a family? What are you saying to us as a small group of friends through this sermon or through this Bible study? And then, Lord, what is it that you're actually calling me? What is it that you're calling us to do about it? Because you see, that's where growth happens when you actually ask those questions and begin to respond to them in obedience. Someone asked a pastor, what's the best translation of the Bible? And the pastor said, the best translation I know is a life that's fully dedicated to Jesus Christ. You see, God calls us to become living Bibles where our lives translate scripture, the scriptures and make the scriptures come alive to others around us. As I said last week, people may not read the Bible, but they will read our lives. We're to be doers of the word, not just hearers or studiers of the word. In Philippians 2.12, we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now let me ask you, when you work out with weights, of course I assume all of you do, such a good thing to do. But when you work out with weights, do you work to get muscles? Or do you work out to grow the muscles you already have? Well, of course you grow. Uh, you do that to grow those beautiful muscles that you already have. Well, notice Philippians 2.12 doesn't say to work for your salvation. It doesn't say to work to achieve your salvation. No, it says work out 
your salvation. Meaning, you have already received your salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, but now, work it out. Step out and trust God to do the seemingly impossible through you. And see his power and his strength displayed. So, in the, in a, so this in a nutshell is what Paul wants all people, but especially the respectable people here in chapter 2 and in the church of Jesus Christ to understand and to respond to. First of all, we are saved through faith in Jesus alone. And second, our good works really matter. So let me wrap up by summarizing the implication of these two truths for our life. Truth number one, we are saved by faith in Christ alone. You know, other than Christianity, every religion on the planet teaches that the only way that you can reach God, the only way that you can win over God's acceptance and favor is through doing good works which often includes the lists of religious rituals. The good news of Christianity is we can never reach God. We're never able to earn God's favor through our good works. And so because of his love and his grace, God reached out to us. Through the death and the resurrection of his son Jesus, God made a way for us to come in right relationship with him. All we can do is to put our trust in Jesus and in what he accomplished on the cross at Calvary. We are saved by faith in Christ alone, period. Now, it's easy to say that, isn't it? It's easy to declare that, to say amen to that. But here's what that really means for you and me, practically. When you become a Christian, you are not surrendering your life to a religious system. You aren't submitting to a new set of rules to follow and promising to live a little better than you did before. No, you are surrendering to a person, Jesus Christ. You are repenting, which means you are changing your mind about who is in charge of your life. You are dethroning the counterfeit gods in your life. And by faith, you're surrendering your life to your, nor, your new Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Since he is your Lord and King, you do not get to decide on the basis of your schedule, your personal interests, your preferences, your goals for success, which of his commands and principles you will say yes to and which you will say no to. Because that means you're still in charge, not him. And if you're still in charge, then nothing has changed, has it? And you need to really examine whether your faith in Jesus is genuine. Church, we cheapen all Christ did for us. And we deprive ourselves of all God wants for us when we think that eternal life is obtainable by little more than nodding our head in God's direction or believing the right stuff or saying the right prayer, but never intending to grow deeper in our friendship with him and living the life that he calls us to. 
make no mistake, becoming a Christian involves a complete change of mind about who you will give your life to and serve from this point on. It's embracing the God who is rather than the God that you would like. It's putting your life completely in his hands and trusting him, not only to get you to heaven when you die, but daily following him as your Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says this, and he, referring to Jesus, died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now to be clear, submitting completely to the Lordship of Jesus Christ does not mean that there will not be struggles in your Christian life, that there won't be any ups or downs. For example, I love my wife Gwen, and I am totally committed to her. But that does not mean that there are never struggles, tensions, misunderstandings, or feelings between us. In a relationship as close as marriage, there are in, these things are inevitable. And there are times when apologies and forgiveness is in order. But that doesn't mean that our relationship or our marriage is done because we've got struggles. No, it continues because we've made a commitment to each other to stay together and to know each other more completely and to love and to serve each other more consistently. As you've heard me say many times, it isn't the perfection of your life, but the direction of your heart and life that really reflects where your relationship is at. When you put your faith in Christ and repent, you change your mind about the direction of your life from trusting and living for yourself to trusting and living for Jesus. So with that in mind, where do you really stand with Christ? Have you put your faith in him alone? Truth number one, we are saved by faith in Christ alone. Truth number two, our works really matter. So what are the implications for this truth for us today? Well, even though our good works don't get us to heaven, they will impact our experience of heaven. Where we spend eternity is based on what Jesus did for us on the cross. But how we spend eternity is going to be based on what we did for Christ and his kingdom. Revelation 11, verse 18 says, it describes the time when Christ's followers will face judgment of rewards. It's kind of the uh, you know, special rewards for Christians where our deeds and our good works will be evaluated. When we serve with proper motives with a right heart is unto the Lord, God is going to reward our good deeds. Now here's the thing. I want you to look at the simple picture on the screen in front of you. You see a dot and a line. 
The dot is small and exists in one little place. The line begins in one place and then it takes off across the screen and goes on and on without end. Now the dot stands for your whole life here on earth. For most of us on average, that's about 80 years. The line represents your life after death and eternity. That's forever and ever. And folks, that's a long time. Now here's the thing. Far too many of us live like all that matters is what happens in that little dot. Some of us will pay any price. We will ruin our health, our marriages, our families, our integrity, our integrity, our reputation to reach the top, to be the best, to have the most, to be one up on someone else. Often oblivious to the fact that life in the dot will soon be over. We're going to leave that all behind. And then we face eternity. And even more tragically, the Bible teaches that what happens inside the dot determines everything that happens on the line. The choices we make in this life determine not only where we will spend eternity, but how we will experience eternity. And so remember, what you do to advance your selfish interests in the dot will burn and be forgotten when your life in the dot is over. On the other hand, what you do in Jesus' name will last forever. No one else may see your good deeds. No one else may see your faithful service, your generosity behind the scenes, but God does. He sees everything you do in his name, every moment of every day. He sees your motives. He sees your attitudes, your acts of service, and your kindness. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 6, when you pray, your prayer is so valuable to God that he will reward you openly. Hebrews eleven six says that God rewards those who earnestly seek him, who earnestly step out like we talked about a few weeks ago, who earnestly step out and trust him to do the seemingly impossible. Colossians 3, 22 says, God will reward you for submitting to your employer and for being a faithful employee. Matthew 16, 24 says, God will reward you for the sacrifices you make to serve in his kingdom. 1 Timothy 6.18 teaches, God will reward you for sharing your time, your talent, and, the, and your money to further his kingdom purposes in and through his church. Luke 6.35 teaches, God will reward those, reward those who treat others kindly, even when they take advantage of us. Luke 14, verse 14 says that God will reward those who extend hospitality to others for providing a meal for the poor or the incapacitated. Mark 9, 41 says God will reward you for serving those in need. Now the Bible doesn't give a very clear picture of what those rewards will be and even the hints that it does give are rather vague and kind of foreign to us. But of this we can be certain. Whatever they are and however they will increase our experience of heaven, the rewards of heaven will be far more awesome 
than anything this world has to offer. It won't even be close. I'll close with this. In Eternity Magazine, Olga Wetzel tells the true story of a time that she was riding a bus from Flagstaff, Arizona to Albuquerque, New Mexico. The bus stopped at a small wayside station in the middle of nowhere. And a young native Indian boy got on the bus and took the seat next to her. It was a bitterly cold night. And in the warmth of the bus, the young boy soon fell asleep. About an hour later, he woke up and he walked to the front of the bus and he asked the driver if they were near his destination. And the driver angrily snapped back and said, no, we passed that a long time ago. Why didn't you get off when you were supposed to? The boy said, oh, well, would you mind stopping the bus and I'll just walk back? The driver said, no, it's too cold. You'll freeze to death. You'll have to go to Albuquerque and then get a ticket to ride the bus back. The boy came back to his seat with a look of deep sadness and concern on his face. He told Olga he, he didn't know what to do. He said, my sister, she's waiting for me back at the stop. And you know, I'm afraid about whether I'm going to find the right bus back too. And not only that, I don't have enough money for this additional ticket. And she said, you know, don't you worry one bit. You stay with me. I'll make sure that you get a bus ticket and that you get on the right bus. And then she put her arm around the little guy and she said, everything's going to be okay. You don't need to worry about anything. And a few moments later, he looked up at her and he said, lady, are you a Christian? You know, there isn't a greater compliment that a Christian can receive. There isn't greater confirmation that a Christian can receive of the validity of their faith than to live your life in such a loving, winsome, and gracious way that people see Jesus in you. Paul says, test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. The question we must all settle at some point in our lives is who is my Lord? Who or what am I worshiping and serving with my life? Paul makes a powerful case that no one's more worthy to give our lives to than Jesus. One day, when our life is over, we're going to see Jesus for who he really is. And the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. One day, those of us who have put our trust in Christ will be part of a, an award ceremony 
that will outshine the greatest Olympic ceremonies ever. The halls of heaven will ring with praise and celebration. Witnesses from every nation, every generation will watch with eager anticipation. Even the angels will pause as we receive our rewards and hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Nothing will compare with that moment. And that's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, therefore, my dear friends, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Nothing. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Can you say amen to that? Amen. amen. Would you please stand? Lord Jesus, thank you for your amazing grace, for making a way for a sinner like me to be your friend. Thank you also for the meaning and the purpose that you bring into my life by inviting me, Lord, to join you in loving others and impacting others' lives for eternity. Thank you, Lord. Just take a moment now and ask, Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what are you asking me to do about it? And then we'll respond to his amazing grace.